Hey everybody, welcome back to another all new X's for show, your premier media response show where we talk about all the big hits all week long. I'm Nico and you can catch me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me thwipping around the world wide web at XNateXGrayX. And that leaves me as Kevo, and you can find me on the interwebs at Kevo Really. That's K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And our first question right off the bat is, who is your favorite Spider-Verse character? That's a no-brainer for me. It's got to be May Day Parker. She is, uh, she's my light. That's my girl. Uh, because you stole May Day, I'll I'll trade you and give the other one you would have done had you not done May Day, which is of course Spinneret, MJ, wife to Peter in the universe where together they are a crime fighting family with their daughter Annie. Um, and you know we might as well make this a Mayfecta, and I think that a wonderful, amazing character who can never be sung the praises of enough is uh, Aunt May. Whether she's the incredibly, incredibly decrepit version from some films, or the unbelievably sexy version from other films, uh, Aunt May is an amazingly versatile character. That's for sure. Or Spider Man from the comics. Yeah, Golden Oldie. Golden Oldie, put it it. out there. Uh, I'm reading. Go ahead. Well, no, let's uh, let's hit our next question. Next question. All right. Uh, Tugboat Garfield or Mr. Zendaya? Um, So, of course, just to be clear, we are talking about Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, or Tom Holland. That's what it says. (laughs) That's what it says. Um, I have to be honest. Be more clear. Andrew Garfield is my Spider-Man. I I don't know, man. Whenever I, I see that. my favorite runs, I see them through Garfield. I just want lasagna thwip. I do think Andrew Garfield is the best cast and the best acted one. Uh, the movies do him so little justice. And mm. Holland's movies are so correct. And it's not that he's bad. It's just that everything is set up for an actor to do well as Spider-Man in those movies. And unfortunately, uh, you know, Toby's are kind of similar, but in an opposite way. We were starved for superhero content. So he just seemed like the guy because he was Spider-Man. We'll take it. Garfield is living up is you know has to live up to other expectations but he doesn't have the support of marvel and unfortunately it's a real tough watch but i do think he is the best guy for the job Gavo. i really i really get that and you know to sing more praises of garfield he was amazing but for me he was sort of spider-man at his best even when he was at his worst he was the coolest spider-man at his best he was the sexiest i think that tom holland's for me really encapsulates so much more of all of spider-man he's at a right enough age where he's not you know incredibly still a child but he's still a teen and he's still in school and it was really cool to see that uh correctly portrayed i think tugboat did an amazing job as well but it was always really hard to buy him as a teenager he always seemed 40 so this has been a really cool thing to see all right and then our last opening question favorite spider look or costume it, this is a, a tough one i think ultimately i'm gonna have to go with some version of the ben riley costume it's just so iconic Oh man, that cutoff hoodie. Uh, I really agree, but uh, I'll go with another hooded spider costume. 
just to give us some variety. I really do love Sakura Spider's look. So great. Um, yeah, just a gorgeous hood, a gorgeous feminine look. Gorgeous feminine cutoff hoodie. Got it. <clears throat> uh, you took mine. We should probably check with each other on these answers before we do this. Because <laughs> no, that's okay. I also... We can agree. Uh, yeah, but like I loved Scarlet Spider growing up. I had a toy of it, and I remember him for his very brief appearance on the animated show, and I thought it was really cool. So I guess I'll say, uh, just to give a third, uh, another hooded Spidey look, and uh, Gwen, uh, such a cool style, and uh, I, I would love to see it in all sorts of colors and all sorts of looks. Very cute, very comfy. We love it. Hoods really are kind of uh, our generation and the future's capes. Uh, yeah, they... yep. They serve no purpose, but the style is totally there. And unlike capes, they're not wildly impractical. But man, do they let you know you're looking at a different kind of hero. Yeah. So we are here today to talk about Spider-Verse, like all things Spider-Verse, but most specifically uh, across the Spider-Verse, the uh, famous song made famous by the Beatles covered by Fiona Apple. Um no, of course, we're here to talk about Spider-Verse, uh, the film, and Spider-Man 1 through 7 by the like Spider Legacy team of Dan Slott and Mark Bagley, among others, right? So let's kick things off with a quick stroll through what the Spider-Verse film franchise is, and let's start by taking a look at Into the Spider-Verse uh, for a moment. Into the Spider-Verse as a film, I think, was one that I, I, I didn't jump on right away. I was kind of unsure of what to do with Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, I felt like Sony was making a lot of promises that there was just no way it could possibly deliver on. But I found ultimately, whether it was the daring frame rate method of animation or the complex way they used music to sell the story, Into the Spider-Verse actually had a realistic young feel without pandering like fellow youths yeah i think that's a great way to put it i think um animation to me especially uh not specifically for children animation uh whether it is adult animation or uh stably all ages uh animation to me is a really fantastic buy-in for a studio yeah. to really convince me that they will do what needs to be done to tell a story because now uh a lot of your like physics concerns and like effect shot concerns are out the window because you can draw basically anything you can animate basically anything and uh while I sort of had the same feeling going into this film, I, I was a latecomer to it. I did not see it in theaters. And I just sort of thought to myself, the writing is on the wall for Sony just trying to bleed this property that they own of cash because they are the only ones who own Marvel stuff that Marvel doesn't have. And they will capitalize however they can, which... That is business. We have to accept it. But we just saw the trailer for Craven the Hunter. We all suffered through Morbius. We know how that can go so staggeringly wrong. So, yeah, I wasn't really here for it. But this is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum where when you have nothing to lose uh, and you make some really smart choices, 
you can create something that is better than you know better than the sum of its parts for lack of a better uh cliche yeah i think it was a huge risk i think that we had a lot of reason to be nervous especially with the way that a lot of heroic animated titles have been treated in the past with the way the spider uh property has been treated uh but you know even in retrospect i feel like one of the things that should have been at least somewhat placating was looking at the team and it's really funny we happened to just move our coverage of clone high when we are covering this movie from phil lord and christopher miller who are a who are a huge part of the creative team behind the animated series Clone High. Uh, they directed the pilot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, they've done so many things that we have really loved over the last 20 or so years. And, you know, movies are always so tricky. They're so made by committee. There was a quote I read once that talked about how, like, the experience of making a movie is trying to cook a steak by inviting a rapid succession of people to cook a steak by all breathing on it heavily. And it's just, it's so difficult. So you often aren't sure who's involved in what, so you forget to look into these things. But, um, you know, these guys really knocked it out of the park. And I think it really comes down to how much the people who make it love it and how much attention and detail they put into these things and how much care and... You know, to build off of what TK was saying about animation as well, you can do so many things like this where you have all of these characters, not even just with the varying styles that they brought in, which was beautiful, but just the number of characters is so much easier through animation. And it frees you up to tell a story like this in ways that live action uh, doesn't. We wouldn't have No Way Home if it wasn't for this first, for sure. And I do just need, because I'm all positive on everything everyone's saying, I do need to just weigh in on the fact that all of the animators from across the Spider-Verse just came forward and said, uh, Sony basically said to them, anything can be done. So they were given no sleep, no food. They weren't paid. Like, uh, the animators were told, make anything happen and were forced into it. And so, you know, I do agree the magic of this beautiful uh, production is so amazing. Um, but we always do need to kind of be considering how we're getting it. Uh, because I agree with you guys, it is all possible. It just needs to be done in a way that's obtainable. You know, a lot of needs, a lot needs to be said about the fact that, you know, the way these things all work, the way they generate money is unfortunately not artist first, but, you know, the, the discussion there is a whole lot more complicated. Um, yeah, but I'm glad you brought it up early, and it's something we always need to be talk about talking about when we discuss, oh, yeah. especially superhero films. Uh, things are equally bad for the VFX artists on every Marvel movie. Every time a new one comes out, there is some story, be it major or minor, where the VFX teams, of which there are many, that oftentimes were competing for a bid uh, only to get outbid by somebody else and then to get a different slice of the work, and they're all pitted against each other with this kind of, if you crunch on this one project and you all suffer, you'll get all the work you could want from us. And the process just kind of repeats and repeats and people are 
put in this position of a kind of overworking that is simply not excusable. We are seeing now the effects of what the writer strike is going to do to our ability to receive and consume this media in the scheduled time frame that we had come to expect. And guess what? We're all going to live. So if we start seeing scaled back releases as a result of the people that create this work getting to live healthy, work balanced, uh, you know, fulfilling, paying lives, uh, I am okay with seeing fewer of these films per year knowing that every single person that makes them is not pushed to the point of, you know, utter and abject misery to get there. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is that maybe we need to employ more people. Maybe these movies need to generate less profit that goes to, I'm not picking on executives, but like when you hear David Zaslav got paid the equivalent in his bonus of what he was, you know, firing like 214 writers to make, maybe that's where some of this money comes from. And we restructure in a more linear direction. But, um, you know, Kevo, your thoughts. Or not. That's cool, too. <laughs> yeah, I just mean specifically on, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm on board with what everyone's saying. So... You know, uh, in general, what was everybody's reaction to the first Spider-Verse film? You know, we've talked kind of broadly about, you know, Spider-Verse, the movie, what it meant. But, like, how did you guys feel about the first Spider-Man movie not to be focused on Peter Parker? Not to be focused on Peter Parker gets bit by a radioactive spider and then starts to fight other animal people. Like, how did you guys feel about this reinterpretation of this idea? You know, as I said earlier, I the buy-in felt really special to me. Uh, it felt like, okay, like we're finally seeing so many of the things that I think a lot of us ask for, which are not another origin story, not another, you know, Peter Parker film, not another uh, live action movie that we had a young man of color really be the lead in this, uh, regardless of whether or not it's animated, is so incredibly important. And it it felt special right off the bat. I was excited to be following another person, uh, not, you know, not Peter Parker again. I mm-hmm. was really excited at the balance of what we got to see in terms of uh, spider characters who are out there, but also the restraint. Uh, the promise that there could be more of these and we could go across and beyond the Spider-Verse in time. We didn't need to flood the market immediately. And in doing that, we we got some solid character work on all of the spiders and we got to generate some real excitement for each of them. Even somebody like Peter Porker, who in the comics I've kind of not really liked but I felt that they figured out a way to make it work here. And I think the structure of it as well, uh, you know, 
starting with the Chris Pine version and then zooming out and having Peter basically be removed from the equation for so long, you know, creating this absence and then introducing this concept of not just another Peter, but other spider people to make their feel, you know, that there is more room for Miles to be introduced. Uh, you know, I think the absence of Peter Parker and the lack of use of him was also really, really well done in the film to let Miles have much more of the spotlight. And I, real quick, um, you know, as two people, Nico and I, who have covered so much Spider-Verse comic stuff, one of the things uh reflectively because i had i saw this before i really got deep into the spider-verse comics um that these films set the tone immediately for the idea that uh peter parker is not the most important spider person in the universe at all um that that is the seed that is planted early on means that these films are not beholden to marvel lore in a way yeah. that uh kind of can injure the spider-verse comic event from time to time which we'll get into in just a bit well from into the spider-verse to across the spider-verse let's take a look at the more recent film right uh it came out like i want to say like six weeks ago and it's so unusual that a movie isn't making the leap to on demand i actually saw some people online saying no that that totally tracks with the previous spider-man movie duh that, that makes exact sense with how they handled into the spider-verse but if anybody thinks that the marketing and methodology of release for oh my the film from 2018 should be the same approach in 2023 they might have no. missed a little pandemic or two and, you know, the other side of it is it's actually a very different market for home streaming now. And the fact that this isn't in uh, a streaming market yet where it's still in theaters, like a lot of movies are doing that dual thing. So I'm kind of more surprised that this isn't. But uh, off the bat, I think the thing that this movie did the strongest, just, you know, first shots, uh, quick takes. It said, don't worry about the comics. You don't need to know them. It said, don't worry about if you understand exactly what a spider totem is. Yeah. Don't worry about who an Ezekiel is. And it also said, let's not be too precious with our characters. You know, one of the first things that uh, my boyfriend gave me when we started dating was a Miles more uh, Miles. Psh, sorry about that, Miles um, was a Miguel O'Hara uh, Lego minifig mm. uh, because Miguel is, you know, one of my all time favorite heroes. And in this, he was a pretty unhinged lunatic. And um, I don't think there's a whole lot of being precious about him that you could try to pull. So, you know, um, on the whole, I like that you didn't need to know anything. I like that it didn't hold itself to any standards other than quality, you know. How did you guys feel? Like, quick takes. Because we're going to get into the characters, the, you know. We're going to get into everything else. But quick takes. What did you guys think about the movie going into it? Yeah, I mean, I think you really nailed what I was pleased with. And I, like I said, I felt a lot of this stuff started in uh, the original Spider-Verse movie and into the Spider-Verse. This idea that for these in particular, the comics weren't as important. But, you know, the problem is always how do you ratchet things up for the second movie? 
sometimes mm -hmm. what will happen is they'll go, okay, we need to start doing comic deep pulls uh, so that it gets that kind of buzz or we're kind of out of ideas. So we have to pull from the comics in a way that becomes prohibitive to people that don't know them. But uh, the real kind of mission statement with these seems to be lovingly, we know our roots, we know the comics that we came from, but we can produce something accessible without being entirely beholden to Yes. Uh, and I think you, Miguel is a great example. Uh, I would love to see a comics faithful representation of the character. I'd be very interested. I think he's fantastic, whether that be live action or animated. But it doesn't work for this movie. And he's not really like his comics self. And that's okay. This is a great version of the character. I think... Uh, despite the fact that he plays an antagonistic role, we can see a path to him for, you know, a, a heroic version. And these are all things that in the context of the movie make perfect sense, where in the comics, I think there would be some head scratching. And I'm glad that they just went with what they needed to do for the product they were making. Yeah, I really agree. I think that it's one of those things like the praise that I've been paying for Lower Decks so much lately, uh, where knowing these things uh, makes it make it really cool. Uh, if you're a fan, uh, it gets you excited. But uh, if you don't know, it's not really the end of the world. Uh, they present everything that you need to know in such a way where you get everything that you need to know. You know, it's it's even when it comes to a character like this and everything that Miguel is going through, I think they present his 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 side of things in such a way where you can see where he's not literally a supervillain. I feel like there's no true villain of this movie, which is one of the really cool things about it, where... Sure. I think Spot sucks. Okay. Well, will ultimately be the villain <laughs> of this two, maybe three-parter, but, like, in this first one, he's, like... He's a low-level villain, you know, like... Yeah, he's, he's... He's more like a plot point at this yeah. point than he is, like, and a true villain. Silly. And he's Yeah. He hasn't... Yeah, no. And that's that's the thing. I, I wasn't even thinking about Spot. Yeah. That's... I was thinking in the, uh, you know, Miguel versus uh, Miles uh, of it all. And I think introducing that story with a character that has become so beloved was a really cool and smart choice i know a lot of people are starting to get a little bit exhausted of the multiverse concept because so many things have been doing it but like no way home did not do how much spider-man there is justice uh there is so much and mm. there's even so much to be invented to just add to the love letter that is loving spider-man Speaking of love letters, Spider-Man, there are so many chunky thigh spider people on this uh, screen. Yeah, cap. it's very heartwarming. There's and then that one like trend king hanging upside down from the top. Get it, boy. Uh, I also, you know, it's almost a kind of novelty, but a really kind of special and important one that we have two Latinx characters uh, being sent having central roles where those ideas yeah. are, for one of them, very important, for one of them not explored, but very believably it could be important in his future life, that interact in a way that, uh, you know, they have not spoken about those identities. It's the privilege of saying, 
two Latinx people might exist in the universe that can interact and have a relationship that has nothing to do with those identities, uh, we can put them in films and not then say, well, the only reason they're here is so that we can talk about, you know, we can have a teachable moment. And yeah. I think that's a really frustrating thing we see a lot in films where we might get representation, but if we scale up to two or three, then somebody feels the need to start justifying why, you know, two queer characters are talking or two Latinx characters are talking. And in this case, uh, you know, Miles's background is very important. His home life, his family is very important. But as far as his relationship with Spider-Man 2099, the fact that they are both Latinx characters is not coming into the equation because it wouldn't make sense to right and yeah you know the thing we're saying is that we just don't want abuela araña played by rita moreno to walk into the scene and explain how the spiders defeated la cucaracha at you know mexico like or we just that you know we Miles don't. is uh miguel's distant ancestor you know no i could yeah. actually be okay with that and let me just explain for one second why because if gateway and bishop can be related over in the x-men it, i don't really care like you know what if you want to say that a hundred years apart latin people are connected sure we fuck a lot like but um i just you know um so kevo yeah i want to ask you as the person who has read the least Spider-Verse. Probably. Uh, I, oh my God, sorry. There's just live updates saying that The Flash isn't even likely to come in third place this week into the box office. Um, <clears throat> behind Spider-Verse. And guess what, guys? We're never going to cover it. Yeah, it's behind Spider-Verse. This much older film is still banging it. That's why we're happy to be covering it now. So, Kevin, I do want to clarify. Sorry. This is its fourth weekend. Just yeah. so we have the numbers correct, so we're not Thank saying you. it's been open for like twelve weeks and it's no, it no, had its, it's... <laughs> uh, roadshow premiere uh, throughout Europe, California, yeah. and debut cycles toward the end of May with a major premiere May 29th, but ultimately opened at the beginning of June. So it's run four weekend cycles with an advanced weekend cycle on the first. So it's had a it's little still. bit extra, but it's definitely still pulling in record-breaking numbers, shattering the total haul by the first film's complete theatrical run within three weeks, its fourth week is all gravy, that in its fifth week, it is pulling ahead of films more recent. You know, I just can't sing the praises of uh, something that, you know, Issa Rae, you know, is just like out yes. there being a beautiful black spider woman serving black spider girl magic, which if you understand, I can't even begin to tell you, if you understand the the whole thing that each spider is unique and they each have like unique ways they use the spider stuff what some of these spiders add to the narrative of the complexity of the web of life and destiny is insane but kevo you know literally jack shit about that which means this movie is literally made for you you know TK and I having all of this back matter, that's amazing. And it's made with us in mind. But the film is designed for people like you who haven't done 335 issues of coverage across 28 episodes of MC2 and more coverage over on our partner show, X's for Podcast, where you can check out pretty consistent regular X-Men coverage from 2019, the start of the Hawkspox era, all the way through now uh, with a little bit of the best of the 80s, 90s, and today. 
Um, but here's our focus on Spider-Verse, Spider-Girl. Uh, there's me not yet knowing how to take shots that show off my chest in the corner. Um, yeah. So, Kevo, you. Spider-Verse me. Spider-Top, Spider-Bottom, Spider-Ace, whatever feels good. Spider-Verse you know, me. I want to build on what we had been talking about earlier in terms of the body positivity of a lot of these Spider-Men. And, uh, also emphasize a lot of the body positivity on a lot of these spider women and that was something that made me really happy uh you know it's not that we only got the one female spider-man uh in the first movie but you know she was a child it's different and uh one of the things that i spoke about on uh our marvel coverage recently the secret locomania episode where we talked about uh the upcoming then secret invasion the upcoming loki uh, something I'm really concerned about with Loki is it really feels like Sylvie is the girl Loki. And it's not that Gwen is or ever really was pegged as the girl spider. Oh my god, seeing, Gwen got pegged? Seeing so many other female spider characters of so many ages, of so many styles, of so many body types uh, was really cool and really important. And that was, I think, one of the cooler things was not just, like, how many cool costumes there are, but the actual diversity of Spider. That's a horse. So, you know. And, you know, I made a comment. I was having a conversation with somebody. And, you know, just to kind of, like, contextualize it, when I think about the 1970s and the treatment of women, I think about things like Richard Dawson walking up to, you know, freshly 18-year-old young women on The Family Feud, basically being like... You smell like veal. Are you fawn? Like, you know, uh, and I have a sort of reaction to how women were cast in so much of the spider lore because a good portion of our understanding of modern comics comes from this 1970s resurrection of the 1960s identities that were then refocused through this like mangling 80s lens. <laughs> and it came back out the other side. But, you know, the problem that sort of sources back is the first Spider-Woman was Spider-Woman. And she was basically Sexy Kitty. And every Spider-Woman has either been Sexy Kitty or a response to purposefully being not Sexy Kitty as a result. You know, I think... Gwen is undoubtedly a sexual creature. When you look at her, you recognize that she is a woman full of her own world. Like, and to say that a woman simply can't be sexual because we don't want to sexualize her. Well, it might not be the man's job to sexualize this woman, but we need to project that reality into her, you know, and understand she has it. I think one of the sexual agency. Yeah. Sexual agency. I think one of the things this film really sought to do was to avoid that while still celebrating the quality of the potentiality of romance, while still celebrating the idea of romanticism. I actually think that nobody was more in love with anybody than everybody is in love with their costume. All of these people romanticize being a spider person. And it's within that focus, within that lens, that things like sexuality, family, responsibility, school, lives are all secondary. And the only person who gets to actually have it all, the only person who's living that La Vie en Rose life is specifically um, Jake Johnson. I don't 
what, what, what do we call Peter him? Peter B. Peter B. Thank you. Uh, Peter, Peter B. Parker. B, who has, who, she's not Mayday. She's just not. And it's We'll okay get into that a little more. Because we do love her. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the only reason he's able to have everything is because his wife has chosen to be part of the spider universe. Not because he's found a way to incorporate the spider universe into someone else's life. And, you know, to move into the characters of this film, I think that is the argument. Everybody is married to the spider, but can you make a polyamorous spider life? And Peter's problem is that he is uh, flailing, not being great as spider-man not being the not being the most important spider person as he is in uh the comics he's flailing not being a great teacher but loving miles uh he's flailing trying to be a dad that takes care of his child but also still manages to be spider-man he does have it all but the cost is uh excellence essentially he is not uh excellent at at being a spider person he seems like he's really excellent at being a family man at being a father at being a husband uh but he is not excellent as a spider person so having it all does come with uh some some choices you have to make and i thought that was a pretty brilliant uh way to go about it for peter especially because jess who is pregnant does seem to kind of have it all uh you know she does seem to she has it all including an intact mucus plug get out of here. She talks a lot about the life she has, but we actually don't know what's going on at home. So it's I true. have they my concern. Yeah. I have my concern that they're going to be like, oh, no, wait, tragic backstory. We lied. Yo, but yeah. Marky James is probably pretty hot. He's probably a male model. And uh, he, uh, you know, but I would love. specifically say. I would love her Uncle Andrew. I hope so. Is Uncle Andrew. Mm. I'm just trying to gender swap everyone as hard. Um. I will, you know, I love Jess. I think she's a fantastic character. And I do think that, you know, in this one, they were giving us a, like, uh, black black girl magic, black woman excellence, uh, that they may next movie flip on its head a little bit and be like, it's actually not as perfect as you think. Uh, one thing I will say is this movie kind of passes the Bechdel test on technicalities. And I'm not somebody that is, like, sitting there you know, doing point by point uh, Bechdel tests. But I will say that it's pretty easy to put two women in a scene together and have them not talk about a man, like, you know, have them have their own relationship. And it seems like we're mostly getting that with Jess and Gwen, but then inevitably, uh, you know, in their first scene, Jess makes the comment about how her husband is really hot. Like, okay, I'll forgive that one. That's not the same thing as all they talk about is men. But then as she becomes Gwen's mentor and Gwen goes into Miles's universe, really the only thing they talk about when it comes to the mission that she's on is, did you go see that boy? And is that what makes you a fuck up? Is that what defines you as a hero? Yeah. Um, and, 
you know, they're so close. They are talking about the mission. Uh, it would really be some minor writer's tweaks that would mean that they they didn't really make it centrally about Miles in a way that they ultimately choose to do. And, uh, you know, we get spider bite and Gwen. Uh, there is an implied scene in which Gwen pull spider bite in for a mission but we don't actually get that on character moment where they speak to each other uh and there's just there are some amazing women in this film were they given really were they given half of the you know the relationships that all the men have that would have been ideal but you know 10 percent of it could have put us in a place where i wasn't bringing this up and, you know, that was the one for me really big, like, ugh, uh, these amazing women doing amazing things that aren't talking to each other about that enough. And, you know, I loved the female diversity. I thought that was so good. Hey, it's a longtime show contributor, uh, always show special guest star and uh, number one in our hearts, Robbie. Hi, Robbie. Hey, Robbie. Hey, uh, we Robbie. also love this movie. I just want to comment that like one of my top five spider characters of all time. And I, I can really say that as a person who has <laughs> alongside so the guy else. below me <laughs> has read literally over a thousand spider people. I mean, like seriously, even on technicality, yeah. um, that was not Poveter uh, in the least, but who he was was spectacular. And, uh, who the original character is, is equally spectacular. So that was one of those things where it was like, I love Spider-Man and I love ultimate Spider-Man Miles Morales. And they're not the same character. That's how different the Vomitor on page was (laughs) from this character, this Spider-Man India. Um, But God, he was amazing. He was so great. I, that's another one where I could have stood to have them be differentiated um and you know it's it's little things too like the the looks are totally different i would have called them spider-man mumbai or bollywood spider-man something anything um you know Pavater in the comics is very similar to the other Peter Parkers, except he's Indian. And it's not, that's not the best characterization, but he grows over time from this kind of seed of, he's a really big nerd. Uh, he's really mission focused and he's just really nothing like the character that we get in the movies. And since the movies are already perfectly fine doing their own thing, this might have been the place to really do it because this character, I now would like to see this character in the comics. Same. Uh, and I would like yeah. him to be interacting with Spider-Man India because they Same. have, their Indias are different too. Mumbatan does not exist in uh, the comic and it's a cool concept. Uh, so, that was one place where there was some real potential. I hope they get back to it. It's not the end of the world that, you know, they're not really the same character, uh, but they are treated as as though they are. Uh, at the end of the day, yeah, this is a really cool character, a really cool look, and uh, I was just overall really impressed. Kevo, talk to me about your feeling on the depth of spider characters. You know, I know for some people, you know, 16 crayons is enough. 
and then some people want that like 312 box where like the colors are like mac and cheese and like oh i love that one forgotten yesterday's sadness shadow and like it's still just gray how did you feel about uh what was for me a celebration of all the best things about spider characters on screen first of all that would be mostly gray with some hint of blue Ooh, love it maybe yeah. a of pink in the middle no <laughs> um you mean like this yeah. This background with uh, Forbushman, is he called? So here he's Bagman. This one is specifically oh, Bagman. Bag when Forbushman okay. wears a bag, he's Forbushman, but this is Bagman. This is technically a different spider character. Well, there you go. See, they're and... willing to do it for him. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. I feel like this movie raises so many questions about, like, this isn't the Miles from the comics. Not at all. In so, 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 so many ways. Um, and that's something that's interesting, too, is the number of variants of the characters that I, I find everything you're saying about Spider-Man India really fascinating. And I, too, would want to see that version of this version of the character explored uh, in contrast to the one that exists in the comics. And... Gosh, it's wild that you can have a Spider-Man multiverse crossover <laughs> between these super nuanced iterations of the characters, even. Um, you know, and, and yet Spider-Man still fits into the grander tapestry of Marvel Comics as a whole. Uh, I don't know that we've heard mention of any other, any kind of hero in any way. Um in these films uh which is you don't need to really do you uh and i actually think that has to do with the nature of how the spider-verse exists within itself and also kind of within a multifaceted reality like the spider-verse is the equivalent of the x-verse but when you think about X-Men, you automatically think about, oh, that's a lot of teams of mutants. This is a lot of iterations of Spider-Man. And it's easy to forget that he can push sometimes 20 books a month on his own. I mean, 20 yeah. titles. I don't mean 20 issues. I mean, 20 titles. And yeah. it's overwhelming to think about the fact that it's not just that we're talking about a tapestry of multiple iterations of a single character. We're talking about an identity that the sole focus is responsibility. The only thing that all spider people have in common is they feel responsible for what, for who doesn't matter. It's usually guilt, usually involves an old dead white person. Even for Miles, the dead person was Peter. So, um, huh? Yeah. And, so, you know, this is a subject that we do go in depth on uh, in our MC2 work, particularly the later part of it, this idea of spider totems, what makes a spider person. And part of the reason these movies are really special to me is that they go right to spider person. There's a kind of background acknowledgement that a lot of them are Peters and that Peter is a really big spider figure. But most of the characters that we see most of the spider people that we see are not peters 
Uh, yeah. They are other spider people, entirely other spider people. A lot of those, ba- like, uh, when they go to save Mumbatton after, after they've, uh, you know, Miles and Gwen and Spider-Man India have, uh, like, saved the bus and done all that, and then the spider people come in and help fix the reality, those are really not specifically Peter Parker's for the most part, and a lot of them aren't men you know it's it's this diverse mix of characters so right off the bat this movie buys into the idea that the spider totem what makes a spider person uh really peter is not an important part of it and anybody who feels the call and who understands that with great power must come great responsibility they are all supposed to be there and they are all supposed to be connected to the spider identity and that was one of the things i just right off the bat was really excited about was like it wasn't you know a thousand peters and a couple other people who also happened to get it it is the multiverse of people who happen to get it night of a thousand peters sounds like the next drag race ball but Ooh. beyond that i want to comment that in that direction the fact that Ben Riley, an alternate version of Peter, functioned as a uh, sort of like ongoing punchline and that it's basically uh, my funniest man in the world, a- Andy Samberg, my favorite guy, playing his favorite tortured character <gasps> in, in everything. You know, that's a character he goes to a lot. And I think one of the reasons I like him doing it here is because that character is born of... Ben Riley, if you really want to hear something, you should really check out our coverage of uh, Slingers. It's just a book that really accentuates the 90s-isms of the 90s. Um, maybe we'll start reposting stuff that's classic stuff that we bring up throughout the week so that people can catch it and catch up on what we're talking about. But, uh, you know, I think beyond the just the cool... Oh, man, this thing fucking cover man uh beyond just the cool of the character depth one of the things that makes this film so special is its blend of animation and uh music now this piece of music is i rearranged the uh score from no way home homecoming far from home homeward bound whatever um spider-man fighting three pets would be fascinating uh i rearranged it to be a little bit more like, um, you know, Giacchino jazz score. Um, I thought it'd be a little bit of fun. Um, and, uh, this film did not contain this piece of music, but I thought because so much of this film actually isn't the score, but rather the indelible music cues, um, you know, one of the things that's really important is you need Miles Morales to be cool. And I maybe wish he had been made 18 uh, because I want to be able to enjoy him as an adult. I don't need to be able to sexualize him, though they have clearly drawn a young man who is going to grow into a very handsome adult and uh, has all the hallmarks of being a good man. Right. But But child endangerment is on your mind. Yeah, and like I would have been able to celebrate him a little bit more at 18, a senior looking toward college. I understand why that wasn't the decision, but I do think that uh, the music, the animation, it's all such an intrinsic part of the 
cool of miles. And uh, for all the ways that I'm a happy Cuban man, I'm also pretty fucking white. And I did not think it was necessary for me to do the white version of this score. <laughs> Word. So I want to ask you guys, what do you think about the things like changes in frame rate, changes in score style? You know, for my money, when things like noir comes on screen, while well, noir is the worst character in the world, this movie had a dearth of noir and I was thrilled about it. Um I, I love that they go out of their way to really accentuate that kind of stuff. I only wish every time Peter Porker showed up, it kind of had a that's all folks kind of feel to it, but I accept why it can't. So what do you guys think? Score animation, Himmy. As far as the animation goes, uh, they set up their mission statement in that first film and they always stick to it. But the ways in which they, go outside of the base look in order to do justice to a particular spider character is uh, the stuff of legend. It is so beautiful and brilliant and important. And it's that type of technical specificity. Penny. Penny. Penny, P uh, Peter Porker, too. Like, they just, they really did everybody justice uh, at a technical level that you, when you're doing an ensemble cast like this and you want to portray the idea that they're all important, even if you have kind of more main characters, uh, the, the sort of choices that were made for these characters are kind of always what you want to be doing. Even if it's a live action film, you want to figure out what are the ways we can do this? If it's style of dress, if it's musical cues. And to that point, um, some really fantastical, fantastic musical cues here. The one that I'm seeing become like a meme that is going to be on the level of uh, like interstellar or annihilation is the Miguel O'Hara theme. The uh, I'm hearing it everywhere. It's kind of like a spooky, atmospheric, disturbing bit. And uh, I, I, I just find that really impressive. There was a lot of, again, strong choices made to have these specific associations for characters. And if you've only got two hours to flesh everybody out, that's a really brilliant way to at least, you know, demonstrate that you cared this much, that you cared enough to give everybody a really good outfit. Now, you know, Kevo, I just write music, but you're the guy who loves score more than anything. And I think it's actually hard to separate this mu this movie from its music. Um, as much as its animation, because the music is such a defining part of the artistic atmosphere. How do you feel about the unique depiction of each character almost existing as like, it's almost like the movie's like a Trivial Pursuit winning wheel. And each character brings in their own color wedge. And if you put it in wrong, you're never getting it back out again. Well, and I think that is uh, an intrinsic element of the whole filmmaking process for something like this and bringing you know not just different types of animation but you know holistically different types of character and that includes uh voice work that includes the music cues and i think there is such a very conscious choice of 
making music integral to the spirit uh, and just sort of the flavor of these films. I really loved making Gwen uh, be a member of a band. I thought it was really cute that the bandmates of uh, the Mary Janes were all spider characters like Glory and MJ and Betty Brandt, uh, you know, hiding her spider kit inside of her bass drum all of these things they really wanted to make it very clear how important the music was even when it wasn't the focus you know a lot of things when they want to make music important can sometimes overemphasize that and overplay that hand cough one tree hill and so i think making it uh subtle yet vital uh, was a really important choice now, that brings me to the question, the one that's on all of our minds. What do you give this movie? You know, it's tough for me because I think I give the first film perhaps a slightly higher grade than I give this one because this one was designed with the idea of almost dissatisfaction in mind because this film was designed as a multi-parter. So yeah. with that in mind, it's sort of hard to grade this the same way. They made the first one thinking, God, if only we get to make one. They made the second one thinking, well, we get to make like 11 and let's start with the first two. So I do find myself excited and I give this movie a strong, man, I, I give it a 90. So it's as close to an A minus B plus border as you can be. And I'm sure that that grade is going to change up or down a full letter based on the next film. So I have my eyes keenly on the next movie. I was excited. Uh, you know, the kid in me that grew up thinking my, uh, Miguel O'Hara is the coolest man in the world. was maybe a little let down. But the guy in me that uh, thinks the kid that thought Ben Riley was the coolest is a fucking fool. <laughs> like, loved that iteration. So I give this movie, uh, yeah, I give it a solid... A minus. I feel better about an A minus than a B plus. What about you guys? Kevo, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I see all of that. I really do. And I think uh, you, I, I really appreciate that you brought up right away uh, the fact that this was designed with disappointment in mind. Uh, when we covered fast x a few weeks ago with our friends on the too fast too forever podcast uh we talked about the fact that that film also ends uh on a very very cliffhangery note and that can be especially dissatisfying when you don't necessarily know when the next piece is going to come uh according to headlines today this film's sequel has already been pushed back once uh or it looks like it's in danger of delay which you know that's realistic it's supposed to come out in march and that is very close very uh, close, when you consider yeah. uh all things but um you know a realistic amount of space between um films yeah yeah uh uh it 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 is is fairly satisfying yeah uh so i think you know the a minus definitely makes sense 
Yeah, I'm with you on the A minus. Uh, I there are a solid ten points that are not there, and those are things like that lack of uh, female character relationship work. Um, yeah. The the fact that we end on the coin toss of will this being a two parter work in its favor or go against it has to sort of be have points taken off and frankly those points will stay off even if the next one is great because you really are betting a lot on not giving your audience a satisfying experience and i don't know that that's the right way to play the game ever uh but should the risk pay off they will still both be really great films and the project as a whole i think will really shine uh so yeah there is a solid 10 points that we have to acknowledge uh are not there but yeah. uh that's okay that's the the 90 points that are there are all amazing and fantastic and gorgeous and you know i just with this image that kevo has put up i can't help but see spinneret right in the front there and it makes me mm. want to take off one more point because we don't see her in the dang movie but that's okay i have high hopes for the future and uh, i really did love this one a lot so i th- uh, yeah. i think my probably uh just to jump back in uh, to, i i feel like if i had a disappointment at all it was i felt like so much of the film was established even just from the commercials and not in a way where it felt like they spoiled anything but they took so long getting through all of the things that led us to the point that we knew was going to be an inevitability where there had to be something that miguel goes on the run from the spider team but you know so much of the runtime was just getting up to that point and that's where it felt like you knew this was going to be the first part of a film. You knew there was going to be some amount of disappointment. You could have probably done a little bit more to uh, feed your audience other than just, you know, like you said, they showed Spinneret, but she doesn't do anything. We see a lot of cool things, but, you know, I don't know if it was if, if we were fed enough to wait for the next one. And just to comment on Spinneret for a second, she holds a really specific... Um, role. It's not that this is the first alternate universe version of Mary Jane to be a Spider-Man because you can go see a really phenomenal queer version of that over in the pages of Exiles where she is with Sunfire and they are an incredible couple and that was actually where I fell in love with Mary Jane um, through the pages of Exiles. I just thought she was amazing and um, so I want to just say that, like, what makes this one special is that she is an equal to Peter. She's not a replacement for Peter, like Spider-Gwen or like that Exiles version. So to see an equal for Peter treated as less than an equal to Peter in a film about spider people that are not Peter equal to Peter is why her being on the cover is mocking. And that's maybe the one thing that, like, I do walk away a little burnt by. I wish that this had been May, but it's very clearly not May. This is the version from uh, Renew Your Vows, which is a different character, different name, and we love her. But she's different. And it's also, you know, it's it's Annie. Um 
who is Spinneret's daughter. Um, and the fact that we got a Mary Jane that feels very strong, that we have this child that already has her spider powers, it seems like, um, you know, maybe just make it the Renew Your Vows crew um, their costumes are so good yeah yeah the blue annie's blue is um really iconic and you know mayday is another character who if she had shown up it's like i was saying about miles and miguel it's okay if there are two teen girls in this movie that that talk and have a relationship and in fact i think it's maybe necessary so uh baby spider girl that already has her powers love her she should be there it's really cute and peter needs that character i think peter also maybe needs to see a teenage version of his daughter that sort of shows him that no matter what the world keeps turning no matter what you know the child grows up he can't he's not going to screw things up so bad this is not an apocalypse right so it would have been would have been good to see and, you know, just to speak for a moment on Annie, I do not love everything Dan Slott has ever done to Spider-Man. I like things, and I like things he takes cues from, but I think the defining crowning moment of Dan Slott's career in Spider-People, I mean, it's probably creating the Spider-Verse, which is the... I can't even close my legs biggest balls move I've ever heard. But literally saying that there is a Marvel multiverse of characters worth of Spider-Man in and of itself is such a defining thing. Um, but, you know, renew your vows and specifically Spinneret, Spider-Man and the character, you know, that Annie comes to play in this family is so key and so you know i do think that there is something to be said about showing these characters right and uh kevo if you wouldn't mind flashing that image for me you know just number one not only does the family love saying are you okay annie like this is just the greatest alien ant farm cover band ever but they are a cool looking family they are just so special and we loved covering it and what makes this particular run unique is that jody hauser is the only woman to do an extended run on any spider woman stephanie williams just did a great five-part arc that also featured benji benji who's like the boy annie or movie may like again another spider baby that has his powers as a child so uh he's great he's so he could cute. be barely up Yep. <laughs> I'm pretty furious that Bailey exists and Benji doesn't, but anyway. Um, so thank you so much, Kevo, for uh popping that image up. Yeah. All right, I think we're saying A minus across the board, right? Yep, definitely. Uh follow the gold for this for this third one. Uh, it's already done, so they they can't take my advice, but uh I really hope that they continue to make these strong decisions well kevo any final thoughts before we cut to break um no i don't think so yeah i think uh as a rule uh it was it was exceptional it was very good i'm looking forward to multiple watches and uh just finding all the clear work that went into all these easter eggs and all that good stuff 
But uh, yeah. Love it. Well, everybody, we're going to come back and take a look at more Spider-Verse, the history of it, uh, a brief timeline, and then Spider-Man 1 through 7, which was promised to be the final ever Spider-Verse story, and they lied. They lied to our fucking faces, so... I'm holding someone legally accountable. Legally, I tell you, legally. But uh, until we come back to hold you legally accountable, um, please remember to like and subscribe because uh, much like a fairy, if you don't wish for me and clap for me through like and subscribes, I will disappear. Sure. Right off the internet. So um, believe in me. Believe in me. And uh, support that I am a big fairy. And uh, I believe we have a commercial uh, highlighting some of the amazing stuff you can check out on this awesome network with these two incredible human beings. Uh, And uh, stay tuned because we're going to get deep into some comics. But we are here to talk about not just Spider-Man. No, no. We're talking about the entirety of the Spider-Verse. We've already taken a look at Spider-Verse into the... And Spider-Verse across the... And now we find ourselves looking at the pages of nothing labeled Spider-Verse, but rather Spider-Man. Before we get to that, before we take a look at Spider-Man 1 through 7 by Dan Slott and Mark Bagley, two men who have literally bought homes based on the value of their Spider-Man properties, I want to bejwip a little bit with a thwip-thwip on over to a Spider-Timeline, where we have a moment to take a look at the grand picture that has come together to give us Spider-Verse. You know, when I think about what gave us Dark Phoenix Saga the movie, right? If in some world you said to me, what gave us Dark Phoenix Saga? I would say it's just Dark Phoenix Saga. The quality of Dark Phoenix Saga alone would have led to it being produced as a film. You know what I mean? But... Spider-Verse is just any arc of Spider-Man in many, many ways. If it weren't for the bigger picture that came together, and I guess you could say that for X-Men, but I'm kind of blind for Jean Grey. So um, I just want to take a look at the time web of the Spider-Verse. And before TK and I get into it and how much of this we have uh, snowballed, um, but... Kevo, how do you feel about knowing that Spider-Verse isn't just a singular thing, but rather it's a bigger picture like this? Oh, Kevy, I, for whatever reason, don't hear you. Yeah. Hey, Uh, check it out. I am not certain how aware most audiences are of that fact because especially seeing this timeline and seeing how far it dates back uh you know this is knowing that there is such a history of the spider-verse as a concept as an event is uh very surprising and i think one of the things that the nature of how long spider-verse goes back is i think back to when I was a kid and my dad was buying me comics and my dad stopped buying me comics, right? I don't even think it was like exactly this, but I have a really clear memory of, and this is so funny. It's going to sound so ridiculous, but um, so my dad stopped buying comics and I think it's 9-11's fault. So my father worked in the city. Damn 9-11. And he used It's always his to, fault. Right? 
uh, he used to walk to Midtown Comics and would uh, give his birthday and pick up a bunch of books for me and bring them home. And right around 9-11, he stopped collecting books because uh, he wasn't walking around the city quite the same way. And I checked out stuff like the JMS run when I got a job at a comic shop like three years later. And I remember them being like, we cannot possibly keep these issues in stock. Now, the JMS run has since, uh, which started with Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Number 30, the first time Spider-Man was ever renumbered. Um, now, the JMS run is, it's actually really come down in value a lot in the last couple of years. You can score number 30 for like 250 if you want now, You can, if you don't care about the, the quality. If you're looking for CG Steed, you're still looking at four figures. But, um, you know, this really started the JMS era at Marvel, which kind of didn't break up. It was this bullet points, Thor, um, you know, the guy really had a, a the 12, you know, he had a, he had a chokehold. Oh, Supreme Power. <laughs> um, but that momentum all started because he literally said, what if Spider-Man has been wrong this whole time we assume that spider-man got his powers because of a radioactive spider bite but that makes no sense because how did the spider give spider-man radiation powers it's that the spider was magical and was always going to bite peter it just happened to get irradiated and this literally leads to this being the thing for every character in the marvel universe Hulk has this now. Thor has elements of this now. Mm -hmm. The idea that Spider-Man is a grand destiny, not a cool accident. That starts with this. So, you know, it's it's 2001 before the idea of the Spider-Verse is even a notion. And it takes... 32 years. I mean, it doesn't take 32 years because it's happening the whole time, but throughout the next 32 years, that is developed uh, into a thriving franchise. I mean, I think the point is we were getting to a point at which Peter Parker this wasn't sustainable. Uh, he's a great guy. But... He's too old. Nobody listens to techno. I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the reflections of those two careers are, uh, but you know, Eminem can't retcon. Eminem's just got to keep being Eminem. Um, so, you know, I really respect that Spider-Man has a lot to carry on his shoulders as one person. And every Spider-Person has that. Peter Parker has had that the longest, but it happens to any Spider-Person because they're almost always solo, that there's a lot on their shoulders, whether it be one book or a whole line, there's a lot on their shoulders. And I think it takes these really big swings from people like Dan Slott with the Spider-Verse and like JMS with this run to make them adaptably stronger to continue to hold these things on their shoulders as the nature of comics changes as the nature of the relationship between comics television film the internet all changes uh as serial storytelling evolves truly we, we both cannot quit spider-man and demand that he constantly continue to be interesting to us uh with ever increasingly difficult standards so Mad respect to somebody who had a brilliant idea that panned out for the next 32 years plus.
And I think this was such the character to do that through because Spider-Man is so a character that so many people, no matter what age, race, gender, creed, so many people project themselves onto this nerdy Spider-Boy. And, you know, everyone doesn't project themselves onto Iron Man in the same way. And so it's not the same thing. And so Spidey being this character that has this wealth of diversity, it turns out, and all of these other characters to introduce, um, you know, such the right character for that. For as much as we as a society seem to hate insects, we all love this spider. And we love this spider despite a general conception of arachnophobia as a gripping idea for fear. Uh, and Spider-Man's never really scary. He has no. scary books, but Petey's a cute guy. Now, if we zoom out, we can actually see that the nature of the spider timeline is kind of crazy. So 20, uh, 2001, we get AMS, JMS, uh, I'm sorry, ASM, JMS, right? Amazing Spider-Man by John, uh, J. Michael Straczynski, right? Yeah. And then in 2014, Dan Slott gives us Spider-Verse which immediately results in the 2015 TV event, Ultimate Spider-Man Web Warriors Spider-Verse, <coughs> which immediately results in greatest current working regular letterer. I'm not coming for you, Todd Klein. Like, it's one of those things, like, people will say something like, you know, there's there's vocalists and then there's Barbara Streisand. Todd Klein is the Barbara Streisand of comic books. The man hand lettered 75 issues of Sandman. Like he's a literal genius. And we've had multiple letterers on our show talk about how talking about Todd Klein makes them emotional. Right. So like I'm not coming for anybody, but Joe Caramagna is a modern man's Todd Klein. And he actually had the opportunity to take ultimate Spider-Man, the four issue, uh, the four episode miniseries and compose it into four issues of the ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. And that's, I'm sorry, comic book. It's so hard to talk about these two things because they back, back and yeah. forth. Um, super cool. We also covered that on our show. Uh, and then it was some, it was like a, a between spider versus amount of time before uh, we got spider Geddon, which ultimately disappointingly, not an orgy really just called spider Geddon on, but uh, instead the end of the spider verse in no real way. Uh, it had an infinitely smaller read list because this was the first one where they were flat out. Like this isn't a real spider verse. event. This is just a uh, Christos gauge who is one of the greatest writers in comics, uh, having some fun with someone else's idea. Um, I really like Spider-Geddon, and so many of this run of characters are now major characters, but truly, this was barely an event. This was kind of that thing that said, you know, despite the fact that it's the end of the of the Spider-Verse and is trying to be like, ah, this is the final statement. This is really the thing that says, like, no, we're actually going to be doing these forever. <laughs> and, you know, in doing so, I think it's it better that it's a little bit more casual, uh, a little bit smaller, because it does just serve as kind of a way station on the way to more Spider-Verse. 
yeah, you know, it's it's an incidental event. It's you know, this would have just been some issues of a spider title, but they took it in a direction. Um, which is actually kind of how I feel about the next Spider-Verse event, Spider-Verse, the 2020 event by Jed McKay. Not my jam. Uh, this definitely was a response to Into the Spider-Verse coming in 2018. But this was this was a footnote, man. This was the first time that they just flat out said, oh, it doesn't mean anything when we say Spider-Verse. That's just a title. And now it is. And we have an ongoing Spider-Verse book. Uh, and uh, there's Amazing Spider-Man Infinity comic now, which Spider-Man is in, you know, Peter. So that Spider-Verse Infinity comic can keep being anybody. And uh, the term Spider-Verse just sort of lost all meaning well before Spider-Man number one, uh, end of the Spider-Verse. Yeah, I, and I that is that is where we were at. The term Spider-Verse has no meaning. It has no specific meaning in a way that's great because, you know, anything can be, a, can be Spider-Verse. But then uh, the oversaturation is a little bit what can be difficult because there is some great work under the Spider-Verse banner, but because we're never sure what exactly we're being sold, and if it's kind of being foisted on us against our will, or if it's a really genuine attempt to do more with this line, it can get a little bit tough. And, uh, you know, the big thing about the McKay run is that it is Miles Morales getting a Spider-Verse, yeah. which, uh, of course, because he has a movie, makes sense from a synergy perspective. But in terms of um, if we're going to do this, Miles deserves the whole world when it comes to his Spider-Verse title. And it's not really that. It is just a story about the multiverse that Miles delves into which is funny because it seems like we're about to hit another one of those with this whole uh carnage situation in the summer of symbiotes which i won't get into too much here but so kevo i have a question for you a tugboat garfield and a twink walk into a movie right best how movie you, ever how do you feel about your spider verse no way home which no Way Home is such a response to Spider-Verse doing it better. Oh, yeah. And then not really doing it as well, you know, but doing it as well as you can within the constraints of your own medium. Uh, doing a really amazing job of pulling together three very, very unique interpretations of the same exact character. This isn't Miles meets Peter B. Parker meets Gwen. This is the three versions of Spider-Man that we got across 20 years of live-action film. Uh, helping, helping to design and define the genre of superhero films. And so for that, I mean, amazing work. Uh, if muddled by anything, probably this dude, because I think the involvement of Doctor Strange definitely is one of the things that makes it very much, this is an MCU movie. We have our MCU characters. We MCU over here. 
So, you know, and that's, that's MCU movies and it's what they, it's, it's their franchise. It's their series. It's what you're supposed to be in the first movie. It was Iron Man in the second movie. It was Nick Fury in this movie. It's Dr. Strange. Uh, it makes sense. And he's not so heavily focused on that. It becomes less about the Spider-Man. So that really helped. Uh, you just, you can't really do the same thing as well or as easily as you can do an animation and you know there's no helping that but it's it's certainly more than i could have hoped for and that's how i felt about no way home i know show super fan ally feels different but uh that's how i felt about no way home as well i know tk you were pretty positive on it um it was? you were not as negative on it you at least didn't say it was Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness hard to take. I did not say that. You are correct. That is that is about my level. Right? So I feel like you said a lot of things about it and then you were like, yeah, B plus. <laughs> that is very on brand for me. Uh yeah, I don't know. It was fun. Um I was very looking back on it especially is very scared to take risks and that's a little boring uh that's a little boring for the spider verse especially um i you know they're scared to have that moment where all the red rangers show up <laughs> and i think a moment like that uh would have actually as cheesy as it would have been, would have actually made the movie kind of a level, a de like degree of magnitude more uh, kind of enjoyable, kind of put a smile on your faceable. I think another element of this film too now though, is whether or not it will interact with Across the Spider-Verse and yes. that branch of things. Yes. I think a lot of people are talking about and wondering whether or not we will see any version and we have now to a degree we saw bits of the first two spider-man live action franchises yeah. while directly seeing andrew garfield uh they play alfred Molina's voice to be the representation of dr octopus at one point even yeah. though it was not with an actual version that he played so they clearly want there to be some synergy uh so i think if we saw any of the Spider-Men from this film in a Spider-Verse film, and it was specifically and explicitly one of these guys after having had this interaction, that would go a huge way to enhance No Way Home retroactively. Because there is only so much that they can do, but then let's celebrate the part of this web that it was and really, really make sure that it is part of it. Now, I'm going to use this as a great opportunity to pivot over to our next bit of coverage, which is going to be Spider-Man 1 through 7 by Dan Slott and Mark Bagley, among other amazing creators. The thing about this run that's important to note is that while no character really gets any screen time, uh, Silk is supposed to be the new Spider-Man. And while I love that because I love Cindy Moon, uh, I'm over the Cindy Moon about it. Uh, girl was not in Spider-Man across the universe. Uh, oh, sorry, Spider-Verse. And the reason that's significant is because they're saying that in the comics, Miles has been used so much 
we've reached Miles can no longer be the main star of a Spider-Verse event. And because he's been so overused, but we're still at mm, no crazy rich Asian lady can lead a Spider-Man movie. Mm. So mm, this Spider-Man run is predicated on every bit of Spider-Verse lore that came before it and then takes a bunch of it and throws it out and comes up with a couple of quick uh, deus ex machinas that really threw me off. Uh, But I want to start with my first shock in this run is specifically the opening pages in which Peter says... I work for Norman Osborn. I have a high-tech suit and a robot buddy. That's right. My life is weird. Try to keep up. And then not one of those things ever comes up again. What a way to tell me there's no point in keeping up. Yeah. Yeah, it does very much feel like uh, the author who definitely i think feels they know spider-man best and they're gonna write their spider-man it feels like that author was given the note you need to be aware that somebody else is writing the title amazing spider-man right now and that is very connected to the rest of the marvel universe yep so you are not allowed to just write him entirely as you want entirely disconnected from his other circumstances you are required to put in a page or two uh, and then, you know, later an arc or two, it seems like, uh, establishing that this is a moment in the context of the universe that he is in otherwise. But then other than that, once that once that happens, once, you know, the introduction says to you, hey, this is taking place in present continuity. This is Saturday and everything you're seeing in Amazing Spider-Man is the following Sunday. Once that happens, it really does just go off in its own world. For the first seven issues. And it's in that vein that I was really surprised by how much of this story was kind of play it to the numbers. Uh, the general storyline here is that while previous iterations of Spider-Verse have focused primarily on the idea that in the Marvel multiverse, of which the proper Marvel universe is 616 and the ultimate universe is 1606, uh, there is a world 001 and that is the world of the inheritors and the inheritors are creatures who feed off of totemic power and for whatever reason spiders are the most central totemic power but they also try to like eat the black panther from time to time so uh it happens And the Inheritors are a weird fucking family. And the one I like the most is, of course, Morlin. He is the best. And one of Morlin's first line of dialogue is, I don't know, guys. Did these pants make my ass look fat? Seriously, that is one of Morlin's first lines of dialogue. He is a perfect villain. Do they? Kind (laughs) of. Uh... And I I love Moreland. I love the Inheritors as a concept, but the actual execution of them always kind of let me down. The evolution of it here is that the Inheritors kind of belong to like a family of super gods, sort of, kind of. And there is a separate branch of that super goddom. Well, the, the spider totems do. 
And that separate branch results in Shathra, the spider wasp, who can who can poison spiders to become wasp people, even though spiders can't poison wasps to become spider people? I don't know. Um, this is not an original idea. Shathra actually belongs to the JMS run. She is not an original idea to slot, but his usage of her is up there with his usage of Morlin, where I can't figure out what's happening to a character I thought his ass looked real fat. So, um... TK, how do you feel about we can turn spider people into wasp people? So I am somebody that goes in for Marvel Gods, uh, classic Marvel Gods, not G-O-D-S, which I'm not sure if I'm going to go in for. I love Hickman a lot, but we already have plenty of gods. I don't know that we needed a bunch of new characters. We already have Trent Reznor. You're not going to come up with a better god. Nailed it. Uh, you know, that the same pantheon that includes Henry Rollins. It's just, uh, you know. Um, and now so, Brandon Boyd. Ten points. Yeah. Drag race. Brandon Boyd, what a week for you. Uh, I, I knew I backed the right horse there. Um, I appreciate the use of previous characters. Uh, I appreciate the idea of, if we already went mystical with the idea that, like, there was something not sciencey about the spider, but magically about the spider. Okay, let's go up an order of magnitude and take it to the gods. And so we get uh, is is the spider god also a JMS thing, or is that a yes? That okay. there is like a a, a bigger calling of spider. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Because you know we what we get in a sort of preview story is. Um, there is this this young girl god young child god who is like the web weaver god she's the spider god and she is kind and cute and everybody loves her and it pisses shathra off and you know also like just to be like this is marvel gods bast is in the mix uh, which is kind of all it takes for me to be like, yeah, this is part of the weird, crazy Marvel pantheon. I'm in. I'm sold. I really like the idea that the spider people are all tied to this spider god. And I don't mind that I can get behind the idea that she has a jealous sister. That's real god stuff. That's, that is mythic and believable to me. And I'm in. But we then do have to tell the seven issues of a Spider-Man story. And that's where, unfortunately, this goes a little off the rails because this isn't about tying Spider-Man to the mythology. This is about using the mythology for some easy plot points, including this idea that this spider-wasp god can infect every spider-person and make them a minion. And now we've got this thing where all of the characters that we love are scattered because some of them are spider wasps. And of course, they have to catch all of their friends and all of their friends have to stop them without killing them. And it's a pretty... We know where this is all going. We've seen it before. Uh, but I really... At the start, I was like, I appreciate that you pulled these pieces together to put them on the board. That's a Those are a bunch of really solid choices. I just didn't like the moves that were made on the board after the pieces were set as much. And then there's this other 
added thing where there's a dagger that if you get stabbed by it, you're just unmade, which is a cool idea in and of itself. But it's just one too many things going on in this crossover event that is just a title of seven issues that does not feel like seven issues of the same miniseries. And then Morlin is a quote unquote <laughs> good guy. And, you know, even when I'm like, yeah, I want to have sex with that guy that I'm going to regret. I never think to myself, but let me align him with my family. I mean, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Again, like it's 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 tropey. Uh, I don't I tropey. don't like I'm, I'm not I'm not uh but stab Morlin. Yeah, stab Morlin. I mean, like I saw it and immediately I was like, of course I know what we're doing here because Morlin is not the threat that Shathra is. So, of course we're doing enemy of my enemy is my friend. I'm kind of ambivalent about that. Um the dagger is a really great example of like we already have the thing that is tied to the mythology is a plot point and is a, a MacGuffin. It is a MacGuffin that's a totally... We let MacGuffins happen because sometimes they have to. The problem is, at the end of the day, Shathra is kind of a MacGuffin. Yeah. So, like, all no of the mythology stuff can't be reduced to... Uh, to plot points the dagger i was cool with the dagger should be a plot point it's just a dagger shathra really needed to be explained to me how the fact that these people are the creators and stewards of the universe and that one of them does not like the spider people explain to me how that's relevant to the idea of spider people going forward indefinitely because i know there's something there i know there has to be something about you know, the person that hates the people that wield great power well. There's got to be something well, there. And there is, I think, because in the last 30 years, they've spent so much energy making Spider-Man cool. And to that end, they've spent a lot of time making Spider-Man not an old white guy. And then here comes the power to make Spider-Man all wasps and turn on each other. <laughs> And it's hard not to see how the argument is Shathra represents the person who never had their chance to be number one because they're just like the other person that got to be number one, but maybe unpure in some way, like ugly inside, racist, homophobic, misogynist, whatever version, in this case, a corruptive jealousy that no spider person can have. When Spider-Man gets a corruptive jealousy, it manifests as a black tar symbiote that corrupts his soul. So the idea that Shathra, the wasp, the jealousification of Spider-Man humbles him, I think is really well explored in a Nazi stopping the pregnant woman. Uh, literally, Spider-Man Noir unmakes Jessica Drew, uh, Jessica Drew classic, not, you know, sassy Issa Rae, Jessica Drew, who's so cool, I can't stand it. Um, although Jessica Drew original recipe, Colonel Sanders made you right in the first place, girl, you're fine. Um, I did love Aranya being like, Spider-Magic's older than Doctor Strange. Why do you think Doctor Strange makes webbing hands so much? Yeah, Aranya's- That's the best own... joke ever. Aranya's in her own book doing her own thing and is just kind of, in, in a great way, like- she and Julia Carpenter are having their own adventures that I maybe wish there was a companion book written by a woman uh, that was giving us more of those stories. Anybody non-binary, like... Yeah. By not a Dan Slot type. 
put it and, that way. And Nico, I appreciate what you're saying, and I do see how it's a little bit there, but I think you're already doing more exploratory and narrative work to put this together than is really happening in the book itself. When people are corrupted by the wasp and become wasps, they are just drones. We don't get any, like here is me wasp drones drone wasps like bees like drones yes but we don't get them being characters of that we just literally get them being plot drones yeah it doesn't change spider-man noir's personality at all and it doesn't change mayday no now kevo i have a direct question for you as well ah one of the things that this ultimately predicates on is you accept that Spider-Man, like Jesus, is just kind of fucking magic. And it is a savior destiny thing that you received powers from the father figure who then remains as a spectral mystical force at all times. It really is a holy trinity. It's the spider totem, Peter, and the web of life and destiny at all times. Right. And how do you feel as a guy who mostly, you know, like me, probably jerked off furiously to Tugboat McGuire's muscle transformation sequence <laughs> on DVD and doesn't think too much else about the spider franchise's magic other than Tom Holland dancing in drag? Yeah, you know, it makes me think about you know the giant trekkie that i have become this year and the things that i'm learning about that franchise that i feel are not hugely part of the cultural perception and i think bizarrely an example there that i that i feel is strongly comparable is after 60 years how many people aren't aware that spock is half human half human and like borderline magical from the start, though, is part of it. It's not like it's one of those things that was dropped later as a bomb, even in, like, the 90s. It's not let Jean alone... childhood best friend died giving her extra powers. I thought it was something that was introduced with the Kelvin films and the Jabrams verse. Like, mm -hmm. I was very surprised to learn that that was something that had always been part of his history. And so knowing that so much of this has been part of the Spider history for, like, 22 years now... Um, I don't really feel like all of the magic and the spider totem stuff is or has hugely pierced the cultural perception of the character. Uh, you know, I remember when we watched uh, Amazing Spider-Man and at the very end, uh, there is the tag that was never really able to come to anything where you were like, oh my God, the spider totem. And I was like, what the F are you talking about? And that was... 11 years ago now that was a panic a full, attack in the theater <laughs> that was a full decade after that had even been introduced and now we're a decade even further along and i don't think that that's something that a lot of people are very aware of and no even with now into the spider-verse and across the spider-verse they haven't really discussed that at all um my only real perception of the mysticism in the spider-verse was the Madam Web stuff from the animated series. And so when I realized that Rachel Dratch's character in Across the Spider-Verse was named Ms. Weber, I immediately was like, Madam Web, Madam Web. And you were like, eh, no, 
Or if they do, I don't want them to do well, this, that, or the other thing. Because Julia Carpenter is Madam Web now. She took on the the aspect of the psychic spider. I don't understand. And I just think of the old woman in that throne. The woman who looks the like giant Web from throne. the future. Yes. Oh, my God. Thank you for saying that. Because I never really clicked that. And I think I've always felt that. But I never really clicked that together until you pointed out that connection. Yeah, really, truly. And so... Um, uh, Ezekiel looks exactly like Uncle Ben. Yep, that's crazy. It's, it's insane. It's it's. I have so like, many feelings about how so much of Spider Man is about taking off the mask. I'm so sorry. But just so Madam Web, I think, is the most that I, as someone who has such limited Spider Man interaction, is the most that I was really aware of in terms of Spider Destiny, and that was even before this in 2001. So knowing how much it's been developed uh it really says how much room there still is to play not just in the spider-man comics universe but you know in all of these adaptations and that's very cool can you imagine tom holland meeting a tom holland spider-man who learned from dr strange and lost dr strange the way he lost tony and can you imagine him being like yeah, Steven's a cool guy, but like, do you really want to do his hand thing all the time? Like, I mean, something I would love to see is I was keeping track very much of the casting process of Tom Holland's Spider Man because one of the people in the running was uh, vaguely Dylan O'Brien, who's one of the loves of my life, uh, and Asa Butterfield from Sex Education was another name that was in the running, and like you could do some sort of something where it's all of these guys who had been in the running for Spider-Man. Uh, the potential for multiverse stories based on all of these different things, it's just almost unending. And I think that was something that struck me when you guys were talking about how, you know, it's not the last spider get an event, even though they say it's going to be. I think something that would be really funny instead to do would be a story of Peter, for example having an interaction with someone who is in the middle of three Spider-Geddon events from now. <laughs> and instead being confronted with the fact that it is so unending. And every time it happens, you think it's going to be the last one. And instead, the story being, no, it's an unending cycle. And you're going to be dealing with this forever. And that was something that I feel, you know, in my youth, Buffy at times really pointed to this idea of the fight is unending and that doesn't mean you stop i love everything you're saying because this idea that you know people might not realize it but buffy summers name is summers right like scott summers like leader of the x-men leader of the scooby gang i'm so glad that they didn't waste dylan o'brien on a character who is incapable of growing into adulthood because when Spider-Man grows into adulthood, they're going to recast him. And I would sooner see Dylan O'Brien play the world's literally sexiest Scott Summers uh, ever. Mm, with a little bit yeah, of fight, with a little bit of Ooh. attitude, with a little bit of, you know, I mean, I mean this with love, but dude, get on some D-ball and then we can talk. But, um, you know, I think Dylan O'Brien would have been wasted on Spider-Man because he doesn't have the naivete that a Tom Holland can express and it's that cyclical nature that actually brings me back to the opening of Spider-Man number three, where it just feels like there's 15 spider characters on the page. No one has a personality and they're buying time 
One of the problems is that Shathra is a little more than the actual dagger herself. And I never feel that what I'm given is a spider world. I feel that I'm told that through this event, in many ways, through Spider-Man 1 through 7, it's almost like they're saying Spider-Man by himself could function in his many iterations in an onslaught, in a secret world, uh, secret wars, or in a, I almost said secret worlds, but like kind of, yeah, like Spider-Man. Just by, the next event. Yeah, he by himself could represent a hero's reborn world is what I'm kind of trying to say. And by casting Spider-Man as every character in an event and saying that Spider-Man is a burden of responsibility, but not a character type, one of the events follies that i think is made really clear by issue three is you're not giving us anything there's this really cool bit in issue one into two or it might be two into three where they're showing us this very almost the way that michael gatos represented 1960s pop art in the pages of alias for the spider-man flashback where they're showing 616 Beta, and they're explaining that 616 Beta isn't a part of the web of life and destiny. And in that, one of the things that happens is they remind us that there's always an out. Spider-Man will never have real consequences. I have what I'm going to start calling, thanks to Kevo's nomenclature, FFS. I have fandom fatigue syndrome. I walked away from X-Men a couple of months ago because my heart broke. I can actually tell you what broke my heart. And I've been really thinking about, did Moira McTaggart becoming evil break my heart? And it pushed me. But the greatest moment in comics history in my life, the moment that changed my life forever in comic books, was Magneto is Zorn. I literally felt unsafe in a way I've never experienced unsafety from fiction in my life. I felt like my world was taken from me and I even knew in advance what was going to happen. I just kept thinking that there would be an issue that re revealed that Magneto replaced Zorn or something. It couldn't be that this good man was just a performance all along because there was always a good man in Magneto. So in every good man, there is a monster. And in every monster, there is a good man, and you can never paint anyone with a single brushstroke. This idea of unsafety supported my idea of comics forever. But there is a moment in Spider-Man number three where they're buying time, where I become really aware that this is not moving forward. This is not going somewhere dangerous. This is not going somewhere exciting. Spider-Verse promised me an escape from what X-Men could not, which is X-Men is a million people, and even when you kill Warpath, Thunderbird comes back from the dead, and when you get rid of him, you'll have Neil Shara come back, because Neil Shara is the greatest character in the world. It's just going to be a cycle. I was promised with Spider-Man it was one man, and when he left, Ben came in, and when Ben left, someone else came in. And... I find myself sad that I realized in issue three, I was never going to get the adultification of the Spider-Verse I was promised and instead would need to be okay with the franchisification of a good idea. It changed the way I read the book forever. I checked out. 
I still really enjoy it. It's still really cool. But it's cool the way Law and Order is cool now. I know the mm. beats. I know how it's going to go. We're going to catch the bad guy. We're going to save the day. But I am never again going to get Lenny Briscoe's fight with sobriety. And I am never again going to get Benjamin Bratt cheating with uh, Jennifer Garner before Alias. I'm never going to get uh, Jill dying in the car next to Sam Waterston. And I'm not going to get... So I basically got through masturbating in middle school with Angie Harmon. So thank you to that. Um, hottest woman on earth for like 10 years. But anyway, uh, thank you, Angie Harmon, for everything you gave me. And you gave me a lot. But I'm not putting story, up a hashtag for that. You shouldn't. It's disgusting. But uh, hottest woman on earth for like 10 years of my life. Her and Marissa Tomei back and forth. So... Um, Spider-Man will never break out of this mold. TK, what do you think about the idea that Spider-Man, even the Spider-Verse, is now beholden to a pattern? You know, I don't really care about Spider-Man being beholden to the pattern. Uh, I get why that has to happen. Um, the Spider-Verse being beholden to the pattern has been the tougher pill to swallow and was the tough wrestling match in this uh, particular set of issues because there is so much good stuff and so many good characters and so many great concepts that get pulled in only to be kind of just strewn about on the floor for, you know, a little bit of extra uh, seat filler, set dressing, uh, Mayday being one of the huge ones, just a character that I think continues to have unending potential but to be kind of ignored and she shows up in this just because you can say she was there and a decade ago they were still flirting with the idea that she might be really important so rather than dealing with those beats of her plot importance that they've seeded they kind of just make vague stupid one-line references to them truly don't really do her justice uh similarly silk who is the central she's the fulcrum of the spider-verse now that's just kind of like oh by the way silk is now the fulcrum of the spider-verse now kevo do you remember it's how holland i just want earned... to i just want to give kevo an, an idea remember how holland Roden's character yeah, on please. teen wolf became like 10 times more yeah. important than everyone else how willow became 10 times more important than everyone else Okay. Silk makes them look like dumb babies. And it's why she's constantly has a movie in production to come out, but it's just, yes. where is it? <laughs> okay. And the fact of the matter is, it seems like everybody agrees that Cindy Moon is the bomb. But nobody's willing to do the writing and to do the editorial work to say you know she is the fourth leg on the peter gwen miles table uh you know it should be peter gwen miles cindy and then you can kind of rotate out who's the most important but you cannot do child issues if so i have a question you can't do seven issues yeah uh so in terms of timeline when did this happen for Silk in comparison to like Miles or Gwen? Has she been this longer or 
because my only thought is maybe it's just a matter of like we have to give it to miles then we have to give it to gwen and then we introduce silk you know what i mean yeah, so, I mean, it is new, uh, and I can totally believe that it's coming. Uh, and But so, the things working against that idea for me are, one, that she basically, she just had a five-issue mini that was fine, but not, like, game-changing for her character even, let alone the Spider-Verse. And then right as this arc ended and they give the the declaration that she is the most important spider person, uh, she launches another mini. And that mini is not really predicated on the idea that she's the most important spider person. And so that's, I think, a waste of synergy and, you know, poor planning maybe, whatever it may be, it's unfortunate because now is really the time to say, like, Marvel does these press releases all the time where they're like, we've just announced that, you know, the the most important spider person is Cindy Moon and, like, going along with that, read her new five-issue mini and that would have been a great way to be like, care, people, care. Uh, that did not happen and so... She'll have this five-issue mini, and it'll be great, and it will have been said in this book that she's the guy. That'll be great. But then it's got to be up to another author or somebody, an editorial author, oh. to come in and do the work. Oh, hey, welcome back. Hey, it's me. I'm back. It's super exciting. Um, um, yeah. And, and I don't know that that's happening. I don't know that anybody is going to show up and do the work. I, I certainly don't feel confident that anybody in editorial will be asking for it. And I, I just am never expecting any particular writer uh, to be like, this is my girl. I'm going for it. I would love to know that that happens, but uh, I never expect it. And, you know, I think that's the nature of a brand where there's so many characters like, the idea that the entirety of the uh, spider office can be on the same page is almost impossible to me as a virtue and result of the size of the spider product. And it's just really noticeable for me that we are on, you know, year one zillion of what is becoming the Spider-Verse project this bigger-than-life reinterpretation of the rules of the Marvel Universe. Because that's one of the things that I feel like maybe doesn't get enough credit. It really does change the rules of the Marvel Universe to be part of the Spider-Verse. And that's why Wolverine is never part of the Spider-Verse. That's why that's the next barrier. Someone else hopping into the Spider-Verse. Mm -hmm. But... You know, we find ourselves looking at Spider-Man number three, and this was the point that really shocked me. Julia Carpenter has more character, agency, and personality than any other eight spiders combined, which isn't necessarily a statement that she has too much, but rather that seven issues was not enough to facilitate 200 characters, and... Julia Carpenter spent so much time not being other women. It's just insulting. She spent years not being Jessica Drew, and now she spends years not being Mrs. Uh, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. <Andrew>. Webb. Uh, <laughs> Madam Webb. 
And I find myself that it... The biggest problem with this event is that it so quickly spins out of control. It's about what's going on, Shathra's plan. And then it's about, well, what does Peter mean to the Spider-Verse? Nothing. It means that it's about, and I don't mean to jump ahead. I just like, I can't express this without looking at the big picture. I already jumped ahead to the end. So thank goodness. We find out that essentially not only is Silk, you know, the same thing as a Peter, but Silk needs this to hit that moment in her timeline. Peter's so special. He doesn't need his spider destiny. And to find out that the woman is only special because the magical destiny, but the man is special because he's just so good is like, it ultimately means that what the spider verse is, is a costume. And that costume is a responsibility. What I think is really interesting And I feel so bad saying it this way. But the truth is, while Denny O'Neill and Tom DeFalco are great alternate iterations of the same sort of company man, Dan Slott is not Grant Morrison. And Dan Slott had trouble turning Spider-Man Spider-Verse into the same thing that Batman was able to do with Batman Incorporated. Now, one of the benefits is that Batman has a corporation and we've seen 10 runs in a row. I mean, I did some research. It's actually seven runs in a row. Give Spider-Man a company. Seven. Now that's not all in amazing Spider-Man. Some of them are inside titles, But at all times, Spider-Man has a corporation he is running. And he's always kind of failing. Yeah. And and that's the real problem is he doesn't get three years running Spider-Inc., the thriving Spider-Man company. It's always like, by the skin of his teeth, nobody died today and I can eat. And, you know, that was one of my big uh, critiques with uh, Renew Your Vows is we were still clinging to this idea that Peter can't be successful. Um, He always has to be scrapping and surviving because, you know, he's the everyman and we want to feel like we identify with his struggle. But I think him being successful and that not being easy is a believable struggle that a lot of us go through. Uh, And I think that is something that is missing this, like, you know, the successful spider, the Peter Parker and or Spider-Man corporation that like over the course of a few years and maybe a couple different runs, not reset is a, is a success for him, but a difficult one. And even just as an outsider, the way that you're describing it, it really makes Peter as a character sound like he is becoming a little hard to root for because he's sort of this, it sounds like he's some sort of weird Elon, we work people hybrid where he, if he's just constantly failing at these companies, how can you root for him? I, who keeps giving him opportunities in business like this? He's clearly a business <laughs> risk. And how is that? How, like the story has to, at a certain point, then become the world having this perception of Peter being a failure. And... Well, the world also has a perception of Norman as being a sociopath. So there's yeah. that oh, too. Yeah. No, no surprise that he does bad business investments. 
I want to ask you guys a really important question. Because we read through all of Spider-Man, one through seven. Kevo, you've sat alongside us, and you sat through Spider-Verse. When I think about Spider-Man, I think about Aunt May, Harry Osborn, Mary Jane Watson. I think about Felicia Hardy. I think about Gwen Stacy, Captain Stacy. I think about Gene DeWolf. I think about an endless number of phenomenal supporting characters. I think about uh, Robbie at the Daily Bugle. I think about Jonah. I think about any number of characters. Betty, right? Yeah. None of them are in any of this. They're not in Across the Spider-Verse. They're barely into into the Spider-Verse. They're not in Spider-Man 1 through 7. Uh, We get multiple alternate versions of our Peter. Like, not even, like, alternate versions of Peter. Alternate versions of our Peter. We get the Insomniac Games Spider-Man. But we don't get the supporting characters. I'm never here to just talk about Sherlock if you don't have room for Watson, if you don't have room for Moriarty, I don't know that you're looking at the actual story that was crafted. Now, that's well before women even factored into these things, right? Sherlock. Uh, Irene Adler matters, but, um, you know, kind of. I bring myself to Spider-Man, where the women of Spider-Man define that cover. Jess, Julia, May, Gwen, Felicia. And I think about how the women of Spider-Man are a statement unto themselves, the Spider-Women. And that's why they're getting a film, and that's why they are so central to our understanding of women in comics. Where were they in any of this? The women we saw were reflections of Peter, not their own women. Does Spider-Man, as a Spider-Verse leave room for other people or does the spider-verse suffer from the same self-important egocentric i'm the only one in the universe that peter puts on himself to create the context for the most important superhero in the marvel universe being a random guy well i mean i think it goes back to what I was saying to Kevo earlier when I was explaining the Cindy Moon situation, which is that, like, it's not enough just to say these women are all really good. They're all awesome. You have to tell me the stories and show me the stories. And that's why I said it would have been really nice to have a companion book with Julia Carpenter and Aranya doing all of the mystical back-end work that they were doing to get here. Uh, I mean, it would have been great to have another book that was the women on this cover, Jess and uh, Felicia and May and Gwen and Julia. Um, You can't just put them in a couple scenes, have them be badass and go, can you? It's that, you know, Aaron Sorkin, these women. uh, These women getting crushed by uh, vending machines. Can you believe women get up every day and exist? (laughs) Just so patronizing. And, you know, at the very least, the credit I'll give Sorkin is though he was very patronizing, C.J. Craig 
was a complete and total badass. Uh, Donna was a complete and total badass. And they got the plots and the stories for it. Not always perfect, but, you know, a solid Do you know who Nellie Bly is, Jed? I was not going to give uh, poor Abby the same creds <laughs> because, unfortunately, I don't feel that she gets the proper badass treatment that she deserves. Well, at least she doesn't take a train to Mandyland. I mean, there's some truth to that. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, you can't just write one scene in which Felicia does a high kick and goes, I, none of this, this is no sweat to me and go, Fuck can, the you, patriarchy. can you believe how badass she is? No, I'm going to need an entire issue. I'm going to need an entire series. Then I'm going to need a volume two and a volume three of that series, not written by an older white man in which these things happen and are proven true through storytelling. Spider-Verse has all of the room in the world for these things, and it, it says that its mission statement is that they are true, but it is not living those values. You want me to think hobby is cool? Give me a girl hobby. Give me That's a it. female spider-punk. That's it. Give, you know, and like, because men are always bucking tradition. Men are always busting the patriarchy. Give me a woman doing it. You want to show me some counterculture? Show me some counterculture. But, also, give and, me two teenage girls on screen together at the same time. It's as I was saying. Like, Mayday doesn't need to... Ghost Spider World. Mayday doesn't need to fade into the background because Gwen is now here. There are t more than two teenage girls on the planet doing cool things at any given time. It's not implausible that they'll both be around kicking ass. And I think that people love to be like, oh, well, go write your own or go this, go that. And I think, you know, I, I'll do it if they'll let me. The people are out there and there are people who want to write this and do this. And it's a matter of giving those people a chance and looking for those people. And, you know, it's what I say about pretty much every avenue of art when it comes to using the same crusty old problematic potentially uh, people to make the same art over and over again, especially in this day and age of the 2020s, you can't convince me the talent's not out there. You're just not looking hard enough, especially in this day and age. It's so much easier to find people who are clamoring to do this kind of thing, who are very talented people. Uh, you know, look, look around for the people who uh, are asking for these stories and who are already writing stories like what we're talking about and what we're looking for, who are just looking for the opportunity to be tapped by uh, a major publisher like this and be brought in to tell the sort of stories from the marginalized voices that we're talking about. And they're great stories and they're fresh stories and they're exciting stories. And there's so many, uh, you know, new voices that we should be hearing. And, you know, it's because of that, that I find myself at an, a, maybe a disrespectful place about the way the story comes to a conclusion. It's just sort of, Oh, they defeat Shathra because Silk realizes she's the golden spider. They've been searching for the whole time. And she can use the dagger not to unmake people, but to not just remake people, but like seemingly as like a magic endless font and just sort of starts poking reality. 
Uh, Spider-Man did get stabbed with it and was unmade as Jessica Drew was, but it turns out that only unmade his spider side and the Peter side is so good and so powerful a hero, it still saves the day. And in the end, they all just stand around a bunch of spider people on a rooftop clapping and patting each other on the back that when Shathra turned into a giant giga hyper person, there were a bunch of spider mechs they're all all the canonical spider mechs they really are like four or five of them and they are which is cute and cool and fine but like (sighs) out of nowhere and unnecessary and kind of unearned and you know that's the thing it's so important to consider how much of it is like earned or not and my frustration winds up being that Spider-Verse earned this conclusion, but did Peter, did Cindy, did Aranya, did any of our other heroes? I don't know. No. I do feel compelled to feel done. You know when like you have a really terrible orgasm, but you're done, so it's done? And you need a little time before you get going again. That. I didn't have a bad time. It was still sex. But the ending was so sudden. And so abrupt. And it took so much of the celebration from me. No one won because of their spirit. Nobody had something so unique about them that when they touched Shathra, it burned through her. The closest we got was even wasped Miles hero worships Peter so much that he broke through the programming, but that didn't read like Miles is such a powerful person. It read like Miles is so obsessed with Peter that he broke through it. And then that makes it again. Peter is the main character. Silk is here because of Peter. All of these other spider people are still here because Peter. So, Taking Peter off the board, removing him from the web of life and destiny, didn't actually remove him from any component of the story. It just made the story seem incomplete. Adding Peter back didn't even so much make the story seem complete, but it actually made it all seem, in many ways, because of the nature of the way the opening and closing of 1 and 7 are framed, it just made it seem like it was all a dream. And again, Outsider... Sorry, outsider yeah no that is what it sounds like it does sound just sort of like peter is so special it doesn't sound like miles is so special or cindy that's is not so special <laughs> yeah um but but you know the book will still say that and then of course you know to cap it all off we just throw in another random spider boy uh out of nowhere you know it, unexplained and i'm sure we'll get there and that's great to create a new character but uh it's not great because we didn't need it and we have work to do on the characters that we have so and you couldn't you couldn't make him milkier white is the thing too he's this little ginger and that's just that's so such a choice yeah so the other thing about it that kind of has me thrown off is that when this book was pitched It was pitched as, from what I remember, and I could be delusional because, you know, I am always suffering from spider drag delusion. Um, You know, I'm a web weaver like that. 
I was under the impression this was 12 issues guaranteed to be by Slot and Bagley unless one of them got hit by a plane of falling spider people. And now Luciano Vecchio is taking over for the next arc, which is versus Electro, not Spider-Verse. So wait a minute. This was never a specialty spider title. This was never Dan Slot leaving Spider-Man as he approaches 600. I'm guessing he's 600 years old. He's been writing Marvel stories since 1990. So he's at least pushing 60, 65. And, you know, I I thought maybe this was him bowing down, sort of the way Claremont has moved on to X-Men Legends. Not that these writers don't deserve to keep telling their stories, but when your story isn't changing to match what's going on now your story has to end because you're refusing to keep up with the time guys i still feel 25 i still feel 27 parts of me still look 27 uh but i don't get to say that it's still 10 years ago so when these writers say that my story is where my story is get with it that bugs me you're not ultimessia doing a time compression it's not how it works and so this idea that spider-man number one was pitched to me as the final spider story and there is a an annual that is part of a six-part annual series featuring agatha harkness stepping in as spider-man stepping in as an x-man stepping in as iron man Uh, going on for a month that this is going to tie into that Luciano Vecchio is taking over the next arc. And the next arc is about Electro, who is who you go to when you can no longer do Spider-Verse stuff because of the timing of Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Jamie Foxx's giant pecs, I guess. But, you know, he was also like that big villain in Web Warriors when it kind of finished. That's because that's when Amazing Spider-Man 2 was coming out. Right. And it's just very much the like, okay, Spider-Man has laid down whatever roots it's laying down now. Here comes an Electro story just to remind you that like Spider-Man has a rogues gallery. And it's just all beats we've seen before. And that's we've reached a point where while beats we've seen before can be inoffensive and not bad uh, like the the story might not be bad, the writing might not be bad. What it means conceptually and what it represents in the greater whole, that's not really very good. And that's where we just kind of have to go. Sorry, I cannot. I was with you for the seven that seemed to be the thing, and those have their own problems, but I will evaluate them. But no, I'm not willing to stick in for literally just shrug because I don't know what I'm sticking in for and it certainly was not what I was pitched or promised so no thank you I can't do that anymore that's that is one of the things that uh leads us to needing to take hiatuses from comics Kevo when you look at that cover of Spider-Man number one is that a 40 year old man to you (laughs) yeah no no, that's Mark Bagley drawing Ultimate Spider-Man, Peter Parker, the teenager that he did the first, what, 113 with, 111 with? Yeah. But who we have here, who I'm looking at, is Spider-Man the corporate entity, not Spider-Man the character? It's so fitting that the previous volume of this was the J.J. Abrams and Son volume, because that already kind of kind of sullied the title. Yeah. 
when you ask me who Spider-Man is, Spider-Man is the kid who gets bullied and wants to save the day anyway. Spider-Man is the guy who spends his whole life thinking he lucked into this. And when someone tells him it's magical destiny, he goes, okay, I can see that, but it's not going to change that I'm going to keep trying to save the day. And Spider-Man is a set of principles, right? Like I was raised Roman Catholic and uh, I have decided that organized religion is not for me. And I'm a much bigger fan of disorganized faith. And I have my own set of rules and whatever. But while I have some some real problems with the structure of organized religion, the idea that, you know, be good to people, harm toward none, do what you will. Like these tenets that exist in many religions, not just one that I was raised in, are actually the tenets that define Spider-Man. And I kind of think of them as, you know, the the kind of like the Brooklyn spirit. Like they're that they're that New York Queens Brooklyn. I got to fight to be an immigrant's kid, come up and make the difference. That strong spirit of a young Jewish man trying to write stories coming home from war, broken by the world he's seen. You know, like the spirit of Spider-Man is that tomorrow you will do better because tomorrow you have to do better. That's Spider-Man for me. He's not eight legs in a circle on a costume. He's not a couple of people in an identity. And my Spider-Man can be found in the idea of the spider totem. This idea that there are good people in every universe no matter what. My Spider-Man is not a guy whose powers are defined and rewritten by a single dagger placed at an awkward moment in a plot point. You cannot convince me Spider-Man is a focal point to reality and unmake him so shrug and remake him so shrug. And that's, I give this a C minus. Um, this was not the spider story for me. Yeah. I think that's the right grade uh, because there is some stuff in there and you know, it's, it's the ideas and it's the uh, promises that are ultimately unkept, but man that you had some really good ideas when you were promising that stuff and when it comes to comic books ideas do matter because uh the next person that comes to write this can take those and do something with them even if the writer who said they would did not somebody else can come along and buy back this particular spider-man story uh so that's why you know if this was a one and done, if this was the only chance we would ever have to play with some of this stuff, this would be an utter failure. Yeah. But because this is the house of ideas and that's always important, uh, there were some good ideas here and I really hope that somebody does get to play with them. Uh, but the rest of it is what brings us down to, I think you are exactly right about a C minus. Now, Kevo, as a guy who's just listened to us talk about it and heard that this is what Marvel pitched and planned and focused to come out at the same time as across the Spider-Verse with if this series runs to where it's supposed to run, this is going to end right around when uh, Beyond the Spider-Verse comes out. How do you feel about what you've heard is what Marvel thinks is the matching component to go to the comics for? Uh, you know, it sounds like they're not really sure what to do right now, to be honest. Uh, I don't know how much 
connection or communication there is between the people making the Spider-Verse films with the people who are making the comics. Uh, I know that, you know, the Marvel Studios films being in-house, there's a lot more connection and communication. You know, it's not 100%, but at the very least, you're under the same roof, so you have the ability to connect more easily, I think. So I... I don't know. I think people responded really well to Spider-Verse as a concept nearly five years ago, and mm. now they're not entirely sure what to do about that. In an everywhere, all-at-once Oscar-winning world, what value does animated Oscar-winning Spider-Verse sequel have? And, you know, when you're getting Michelle Yeoh... Does Cindy Moon's absence really fit the same idea of multiversity to escape the idea of hyper-focused white identity? I don't know. We'll find out. Well, until then, this is still X's for show. It's not X's right. for Spider-Man. So we got tons of stuff we're bringing you. And, right. of course, it, tomorrow is just yet another classic X's for show program which i cannot wait to bring you guys we're going to be taking a look at our usual sunday battery a uh, battery sorry about that usual sunday battery of tv uh we're going to be focusing on a little bit of the spooky side tomorrow where we're going to be taking a look at things like crime scene kitchen um based on a true story i want to be like boats because uh, that's its acronym but it's based on a true story uh, a little bit of secret invasion and then of course all of the classics you love Checking from us in on our reality tv binging exactly and we can't wait to bring you guys all of that so uh you know what are you guys most excited about uh tomorrow i know i'm pretty excited to finally get some real food trucks road race on the on the table uh secret invasion uh, i'm really excited to talk to you guys about it um we all talk a lot and there's a lot of things that, you know, we'll talk about behind the scenes just because we can't help ourselves. Like, we've talked plenty about every and any episode of Drag Race, and we'll check in about that, but we're not going in depth. Uh, but we have not really talked to each other a ton about Secret Invasion, and I'm excited to do it here and to kind of explore a lot of a lot of feelings uh yeah and i you know frankly i'm stoked to talk about based on a true story uh a weird little thing that i'm glad that we put on the schedule i think it's gonna be fun to chat about and christmasina is like an 11 out of 7 yeah, so just the most oh my god yes uh i don't know if i would have enjoyed this television program as much if christmasina wasn't so hot uh and not that it wasn't good but that's how hot he is <laughs> yes. um I am definitely excited to talk about this one because it was a very weird thing. Uh, so a lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings. Um, excited to talk about our food stuff, obviously. Um, we just got a lot of great stuff. This board keeps getting more and more cluttered in the best way. I'm doing it on purpose just to sort of, you know, illustrate. We got a lot of stuff that we love talking about. So, Acornucopia. um Yes, I like that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things is that we're still trying to figure out exactly what we're doing. And uh, not exactly what we're doing. That's the wrong way to put it. Exactly how to focus what we're doing. Yeah. We know exactly what it is we're doing. We're bringing you all the most important media from our perspective as it relates to 
the advancement of the mediums, the discussion of inclusion and diversity, the reality of the financial and fiscal realities of what it means to be a fan of something, what it means to put your heart and soul behind covering uh, an industry, and then be sort of beholden to what the greater focus of that industry is. You know, we're bringing you, it sounds silly, but we're bringing you kind of like, you know, hard-hitting faggot journalism uh, a couple times a week and we really fucking love it uh but how we're doing it how to be the best faggots for you is really the question because you know faggotry takes so many flavors um you know Ana defranco said it's 32 and then when alana davis said it was 32 fav flavors on the defranco said no one can ever cover me ever again so uh what i really mean to say by this all is you know we're refocusing exactly how we do it. we're trying out something new tomorrow i'm really excited about it uh it's gonna be really fun this was fun bringing together comics and movies we've never really done that in this way before it was great having kevo for a comic broadcast and uh in inspired by this amazing program that we just did uh starting this wednesday for five motherfucking weeks we're going to be talking the jms spider-man run which will feature writing by two other writers one of them yay one of them we will also see reginald hudland uh do his work on spider-man for four issues very exciting and peter david's friendly neighborhood spider-man one through four is in there so we'll get to that and I'm very excited to talk about all of this in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be just a, a rollicking gay old time. We're going to be covering the Splat Fest when that happens. Uh, it's going to be a real fun splatter day. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to do my uh, Tom of Splatland uh, at some point. It's going to happen. I'm just going to do full on Tom of Finland as Splatoon. It's going to be hot. All right, Kevo, what are you most looking forward to? But I don't know. You asked me that already. We did oh, good. that. Oh, we then, did what everyone's looking forward to. We did this. We did. Then what's the your favorite pub did... boat? I don't know. Um, I so, don't know. so Kevo, where can everybody find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Kevo really K E V O R E A L L Y. Where can everyone find you two knuckleheads? You can find me at X Nate X Gray X and Nico. How about you? You guys can find me all over this amazing show, which you can check out at X's for show on all your socials, except Blue Sky will get on that. Give me a minute. And then uh, you can check me out at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. By the way, it is Pride Month. We make a gay comic book. Check that out at KidRiotComics.com. That's KidRiotComics.com. A name so cool that Kieran Gillen once said to me he wished he could travel back in time and steal it from me. Additionally... Uh, you can check out my work over in Young Men in Love, an amazing anthology brought to you by the Miracles creator, Joe Glass. Guy's killing it this summer, just being the best faggot he can be, killing it all over the place, and he would really appreciate that description. I was so, going to say, that's the one time you know you're totally good to say it. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, you can check out this amazing uh, gaming awards and GLAAD award-winning work. How ridiculous is that? Two amazing awards to put to our names. And again, Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until next time. And, we... you know, it's 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 the last Saturday of Pride Month. And so I want to draw attention to that. It's the last Saturday of American Pride Month. But the fact of the matter is, as Nico keeps saying, we're faggots. And uh, we don't plan to stop being faggots just because uh, Pride Month is over. And so when it comes to things like talking about the work that we do in comics, when it comes to our uh, 
the faggoty things that are important to us. We plan on bringing you pride all year long. So uh, don't you worry about that. Pride isn't over just because June ends. We are going to be as gay as Joey Jade's nude leaks all year round. So by all means, please stay tuned. And, uh, you know, if if you just want to be a, a Brandon Boyd and just be an amazing ally, you know, you're welcome to. But until next time, it has been an amazing time covering this for you. Uh, it's 730 now. So I think we're back in like 22 and a half hours. Right. So uh, until then. Be brave, evolve daily, stay strong, and we'll see you.